I've been reflecting lately on um, the idea of goals in practice. You know, should people have goals? Is that useful? Is that not? Um, I like this topic because we all have some relationship to the idea of goals in addition to the goals themselves. So some people love having goals and other people feel oppressed by having goals. And some people think that, um, that goals are necessary. They can't do anything if they don't have a goal, but then they end up limiting themselves because they're always working within set ideas. And then other people think that goals are pointless, um, but actually they would do better if they were to stay on track and commit to some kind of outcome. So um, you can kind of find yourself on that spectrum somewhere. Um, luckily, the Buddhist teachings are flexible enough that they accommodate various approaches. So I don't have time to talk about all the different... I don't want to kind of analyze all of that, but what I want to do instead tonight is just draw out... Um, basically one thread from the teaching that applies to goals and see uh, you can see how it lands for you so a goal is about the future right it's about something that will be attained after some time and probably after some kind of effort but practice emphasizes, of course, the present moment and what's happening now. So that's the, the way I want to approach. So there's sort of the, the future-oriented goal of what we're aiming for. Maybe it's awakening or, or something else. And then there's also just the present moment intention to stay with experience without grasping, because grasping is what causes suffering and also what limits our movement toward the goal. When we're grasping, we're not on the path, right? So if we follow the immediate, just the immediate idea of staying with the present experience without grasping, then there's a way in which the path can unfold in ways that we couldn't plan for or couldn't anticipate or couldn't imagine even. And this, this way of practicing uh, relies quite a bit on faith. I'll talk about that a bit more, too. So I want to start with a, a very simple teaching. Um, there's a simile that's used several times in the Pali Canon about a hen nurturing her eggs. So maybe we can think about um, Mother's Day is in a few days. <laughs> so... Um, is pointed out along with this simile, through the simile, that her future-oriented wishes for her chicks to break out of the eggs and be healthy uh, are not important compared to whether or not she's actually properly sitting on the eggs. Okay? So here's how it goes. Suppose a hen has 8, 10, or 12 eggs. If she doesn't cover them rightly, warm them rightly, or incubate them rightly, then even though this wish may occur to her, 
Oh, that my chicks might break through the eggshells with their spiked claws and beaks and hatch out safely. Still, it is not possible that the chicks will break through the eggs. Why is that? Because the hen has not covered them rightly, warmed them rightly, or incubated them rightly. And then sometime later in the sutta, you get the positive version. Suppose a hen has 8, 10, or 12 eggs that she covers rightly, warms rightly, and incubates rightly. Even though this wish may not occur to her, oh, that my chicks might break through the eggshells with their spiked claws and beaks and hatch out safely, still it is possible that the chicks will break through the eggshells. Why is that? Because the hen has covered them, warmed them, and incubated them rightly. So it's, I mean, it's kind of a simple teaching, actually, but there's a lot that can be unpacked from it. You know, it's like, does the wish even matter? And if she's sitting on the eggs and she does it correctly, it doesn't ever have to occur to her to wish that. It's going to happen anyway. So this is an interesting analogy because it points toward the naturalness of practice, the naturalness of the path that's unfolding. So the, the, the general teaching is it doesn't matter so much what we want, but what we do, right? And... Um, so rather than having a future goal, we could uh, nurture the process of our path in some way. And so by linking it to this life process of the chicken and the eggs, um, we get the sense that this is a natural process. So I'll return to that at the end. So as often happens in suttas, the, the analogy is given first, some kind of an image that we're supposed to be able to connect to. Um, and then there's an application of that image to Dharma practice. And interestingly, the application that comes after this simile is different in some of the different suttas, but they're, they broadly follow the same pattern, and here's one of them. Even though this wish may occur to a monk who dwells without devoting himself to development, oh, that my mind might be released through lack of clinging, Still, his mind is not released through lack of clinging. Why is that? From lack of developing, it should be said. And then the positive version, even though this wish may not occur to a monk or a practitioner who dwells devoting himself to development, oh, that my mind might be released through lack of clinging, still his mind is released from the taints and the difficulties through lack of clinging. Why is that? From developing, it should be said. So it's the, sort of the same idea for our practice, is that we don't have to spend a lot of time wishing, oh, that I may be enlightened. Uh, instead, we should like stay with the breath, for example. So, you know, what is it that we should develop? Well, different suttas give a different answer, but they're all similar. They all reiterate known lists, uh, known mental qualities that relate to the Eightfold Path, etc. So we're, we're being told that the point is to just do the practices and not spend a lot of time wishing for results. So, you know, I don't want to downplay um, the importance of intention. That is, of course, the second step of the Eightfold Path and the power of wishing for certain things as we go along. I don't think one gets enlightened um, without wanting it at some level. But as I said, I'm pulling out one particular thread. So let's, let's work on that tonight. Um, note also that... In the hen image, there was uh, the need to do it rightly. It doesn't say she just sits on the eggs. It says she sits on them rightly and warms them rightly and nurtures them rightly. 
So it's actually not that just anything will work. Only certain things will work. Um, the Buddha gave us instructions to do, uh, sitting on the cushion, and so we have to follow them. Um, one, one interesting issue, good, good problem to have, but we have it in this area and in this time, is that there are lots and lots of spiritual teachings available to us, which is wonderful. And also, uh, the challenge is that we might uh, cherry-pick a little bit and choose the one that we like out of each, out of several different paths, right? So, um, you know, we, we like the Sufi dancing, uh, so we do the dancing, but we don't like the part where Sufi teachers are actually very uh, challenging to their students and they're... Uh, and they don't like, so we don't like the part where we have to work with the teacher and he tells us all these things that upset our views. So we just do the dancing. <laughs> and then, you know, we really like um, the bowing at the Zen center, but, um, you know, we don't, I don't know, we don't do the sashins or something like that. Whatever, I'm not, I'm just making this up, but, you know, we cherry pick in some sense. And it's not that, it's not that we shouldn't, to some degree, nourish ourselves with very, a variety of things. Um, but we have to be careful. If we're only following our preferences, we may not uh, get the full benefits of the path. So we have to, um, we, we don't want to avoid the challenging or uncomfortable parts. It might not be spiritually wise to do that. So in some sense, um, you know, the instructions are, are relatively clear in practice. If you read the for example, the Satipatthana Sutta, the one that talks about the foundations of mindfulness, which is mostly the most common practice that we do in this tradition. Uh, the instructions are clear. The beginning of the sutta says that we should sit uh, cross-legged or whatever in a chair is probably okay and establish mindfulness. And we should be, the, the words used are ardent, alert, putting aside covetousness and grief for the world. It's not that unclear. Ardent, alert, and putting aside covetousness and grief for the world. But how often do we sit intending to do mindfulness practice and we mostly spend the time on our covetousness and grief for the world? And just think for an hour about all of our problems and what we wish were better and how we wish things were different. So this is not really mindfulness practice. So um, it's not, you know, it's useful to go back and check what the instructions say now and then, just to check that we're still on them. Joseph Goldstein, um, who is a long, long time practitioner and very deep and dedicated, uh, does retreat every year, which I uh, am very impressed with. He does at least, mostly at least a month of retreat per year, despite having a, running a huge center and teaching other retreats. And he himself went back to the Satipatthana Sutta after, I don't know, 30 years of practice or something, and he read it over really carefully, and he gave a series of something like 30 or 40 talks on just on that sutta, going over every single section and noticing that there were parts where he hadn't really followed the instructions. And it's not only about his own practice, but he did a pretty detailed survey, and he talks about them all. They're actually all online. It's very interesting to do it so deeply. And I, I felt a little bit humbled by this in 
you know, such an amazing teacher, such a longtime practitioner, he's still going over the very most basic texts that we study and finding the, the places where he hasn't really followed it completely. So that's interesting. <laughs> so let's, um, well, let's go back to this chicken lesson and unpack it a little bit. It actually goes quite subtle and deep, even though you can get it at a surface level, there's more in it. So, um, uh, the first point I want to kind of elaborate on is that specific wishes uh, can reinforce the um, the content of the wish in a sense and, and also limit us in that we don't know the full possibility of what could happen. So if we formulate a wish, we're only formulating it within what we could know. So, for example, um, people often want to consider something in their life that's causing suffering and kind of go straight at that and work on it. There's nothing wrong with this approach, um, fair enough in some sense, but interestingly, um, that's not exactly what the instructions say, right? <laughs> and so I, I came across this quote, this quote from Ramdas that I like a lot because Ramdas was a very creative, uh, I think he's still alive, um, mm -hmm. although not teaching much after his stroke, but very creative, very out there, not exactly your traditional, you know, solid kind of upright, sit straight, etc. guy. But here's the quote. Instead of trying so hard to get out of the shadow, the dark, which I think actually reinforces the shadow and its reality, just do your practices. If somebody says to me, I'm having these terrible thoughts and I don't know why, will you help me understand why? I tell them that I'd rather sit with them and help them to follow their breath. The breath has no content to it at all. It's just breath. It's better to strengthen the centering, the quieting, the presence, than to keep strengthening the problem, which is reinforced when you work on it directly. I thought that was an interesting quote. So I'll say again, it's not that we never work directly on difficulties. That's the first noble truth, is to turn towards suffering. But we may not need to just like go at it directly. Um, if we can turn toward suffering in a number of ways, such as being willing to sit mindfully with what arises and not go into the content of it. There's also the issue that when we're doing that, we tend to um, we tend to be focusing on our preferences. You know, this is the part that's causing me suffering, which really means this is the part I don't like and I want it to go away. And there's a more open-minded attitude of just being with things as they are. I'll also give a um, a personal example that I came to practice. Uh, due to chronic pain and health issues that I was having. This is a while ago now. And so, of course, I arrived with a, a sort of a short-term goal of being able to deal with that somehow. And um, But I was fortunate in that for some reason, um, I didn't get too caught up in thinking about all of that, which people can. But, you know, I did a little bit. Um, but... Fortunately, I thought it was very interesting to follow these meditation instructions. And it was, I actually wanted to do that more than think about the problems in my life. And so it, it seemed 
just, you know, like a distraction. <laughs> so I was like, oh, good, I can distract myself away from the chronic pain I'm having by following my breath. That's more interesting. And so the, the result is that I did what Ramdas said. I just did the practices. And truthfully, I think that really helped me uh, uh, manage it a lot better than if I'd spent my time going, how can I deal with this, etc. So just, just a personal example. You can see how it works for you. I also had no idea where meditation would take me. So I thought I was just meditating because it would help calm my mind down, and the breath is more is better than the pain, etc. Um, but actually, uh, meditation ended up completely rearranging my life, and I changed my work and my lifestyle and my friends and uh, started doing longer retreats, and now I'm a Dharma teacher, and that wasn't really what I thought about when I started meditating. Um, and I'm, you know, the, the, the process is different for everybody, but it's helpful to be open to, you know, what can come and, you know, what, what a different kind of life you could have. It doesn't mean everything will go away that you care about. Actually, all the things I really care about are still there. And in addition, I have other things that I didn't even know that I cared about. <laughs> so how about that? So this image is a little bit overdone, but, you know, the caterpillar can't imagine the butterfly, right? Um, or as Misha Merrill, a Zen teacher, says a little bit more poetically, um, you may think that you're going to be a chocolate cake, but then you discover yourself becoming a steak. <laughs> I don't know where she got that image, but I thought it was great. So this is a problem if you're a vegetarian, right? But, you know, hey, you have to accept things as they come. So we can't actually imagine what we're looking for, I think, is my way of saying. I don't think we can imagine what we're looking for. We might, we have a tendency to think it's just a better version than of what we already have, uh, which is nice, but I think the teachings ask us to go a lot farther than that and have, you know, a wider open mind than that. So if you're, you know, if you're looking for the source of a river, you might discover that the source is ice from a glacier or rain clouds in the sky, it might not look like a river at all. So another issue with having a goal, taking another dimension now, is that it's inevitably some kind of concept. And the very structure of our ordinary mind is that it creates ideas and concepts and abstractions and so forth. And these actually hinder the, the path in subtle ways when we're working in the realm of theory and abstraction. Even if we don't think we are, like we're not really an intellectual kind of person or a thinking kind of person, nonetheless, we do have some ideas. Why? Because uh, we hear the Dharma, you know, we hear Dharma talks, we go on retreats, uh, we read books, uh, we listen to things online, whatever. And so we get from that some structure of the teachings, which is important, and we get some idea of how the path is going to unfold. You know, people like me stand up here and say, well, first you do this, and then there's the concentration, and then there's the insights, and these are the three characteristics. And so your mind is tallying all this up at some level and saying, okay, I've got to look at that, I've got to look for that, etc. And, you know, it's kind of like, well, what am I supposed to do? Because if we're not the Buddha, we can't discover the path on our own. That was his special quality. Nobody taught him to do that. But the rest of us benefit from having the teachings. And so 
Uh, I am going to go ahead with this Dharma talk, even though I've told you that Dharma talks are limiting for you. Um, <laughs> so at some level, you know, at some level, we're kind of integrating that. And we may inadvertently, I know you're not trying, but we may inadvertently try to create some of what we hear or try to replicate some of the things that you get told about. So having an idea of the path in our mind means that we will we will see certain things and we won't see other things. We will approve of the parts that conform to what we've heard and we will think the parts that don't conform must be wrong or something like that. Um, we might even forget some of the experiences that don't fit because they don't fit, so we can't see them, basically. Um, when the mind, however, there is a there's a check and balance to this, is that when the mind does actually get concentrated and you start seeing the way the mind works, you get a little bit clearer view into how the mind works, you see that this manipulation of experience is actually really, really common. <laughs> We're creating a lot of what we experience. And so we, we tend to be able to feel that as pushing and pulling and darkening of the mind. So that's useful. We see um, more clearly how it is that we're constructing what we're seeing. And just to, to reiterate the point that we don't know where we're going, awakening is the one thing that cannot be constructed. So we can't. So the Buddha was aware of these issues. And you know he taught also. He taught um, if we believe the way the, the, the suttas say it, he taught increasingly... Um, uh, structured teachings as he went along. You know, when he first started out, he kind of gave um, teachings that weren't as, they didn't include as many of the lists, and then later he sort of got it down, and I'm projecting that a little bit, but, you know, he decided to formulate it a little bit more, or, you know, the people who were writing it down later formulated it a little bit more. It doesn't really matter, but the teachings became more formulated over time. But fortunately, um, I mean, the Buddha did teach, and so he, he did decide at some level that he would convey this to people. And he, my, my understanding of the Eightfold Path, which was his template or plan for what we're doing, is that um, it's, it's designed in a very clever and subtle way. It's designed to undermine our tendency to identify with the path. It, it undermines the tendency to identify with anything. And so if we do actually follow the Eightfold Path and do those practices and uh, in the ways that they're described, um, we find that the Eightfold Path is a construction that undoes itself. So this is a long way of saying don't worry too much, but just be aware that your mind is manipulating the way your path is going along. So the idea that we can understand or control our path in some way is is actually, or our awakening, I should say. We have some control over the path, but we can't really control the, the awakening itself, and that, that would be based in conceit. So we'd be, we'd be giving in to the same old egoic striving that the path is supposed to relieve us of. So none of this is to say, of course, that we shouldn't reflect on our path or deliberately address particular things that are coming up, absolutely. Um... Nor does it say that we would, should blindly follow the teachings that we hear or, or a teacher. But um, there is still need for discernment. So then one can ask, well, 
what is behind the decision to undertake a certain practice at a certain time? You know, what is it that's doing that in our mind? You know, it's not it's not random, and there are intentions that come, and there are things that we decide to do. So I will suggest that it's wisdom and compassion you know, that do that, as opposed to me, you know, Kim, myself, doing that. So if I allow my ordinary mind, the one that wants to set goals, <laughs> to get involved, then I'm probably going to try to be creating something. But if I allow wisdom and compassion to shape what I decide to do next, um, that's better. We won't go on so many long detours where we realize, oops, that wasn't quite it. So, um, the yeah, the ordinary goal-setting mind can get wrapped up in things that we think we ought to do, or we can do things because we're emotionally caught up in a teacher or a community or a goal. Um, so a lot of this path is learning to hear our inner voice, learning to hear wisdom and compassion operating for us. And the good news is that we can hear it long before we're fully awakened, if we're willing to open to it and trust it in ourselves. So this is where we can place our deepest faith or confidence, is in what our heart is telling us. Not our wanting, not our self, not our aversion, not our greed, you know, but our wisdom and compassion. Those are the ones that are on our side. So this brings me, of course, to the role of faith that I hinted at at the beginning. I want to tell a story that I, I like. Um, it's, from a, it's from the Tibetan tradition, but um, very applicable to this. So there was a, it's a story of a woman who was married and had two sons, and they lived the household life, and they weren't uh, very well off, and they kind of came upon hard times where they weren't getting much work, and so they didn't have much money, and they were finally down to their last cup of rice. And the husband and the, I guess there were three sons, because they went off in the four cardinal directions, and they left the woman at home, and they said, we're going to go off and find work today and bring back food or money in the evening. So she thought, great, she had confidence in that. She stayed home. During the day, a spiritual seeker came and knocked on the door. Um, at the time in India, there were, you know, wandering ascetics. And so one came by and um, asked for food. And she thought, well, I'm sure everything will work out. And so she gave him the rice. Mm -hmm. And uh, the husband and sons came home in the evening and they said, well, we didn't have any luck, so let's have the rice. And she said, oh, I, um, I gave it to a wandering spiritual seeker who came by. And they got angry, and they said, what? And they, they threw her out. And so um, she was uh, out on the street, but she, you know, she managed to beg for food and um, wandered for a while doing that and eventually entered some other part of the land. And she got... And she turned out she was okay at that lifestyle. And she um, at one point got lucky and got some, uh, some barley and uh, malt, and she made beer out of it and went to the market and sold it. And she um, discovered that she was really good at making beer, actually, which she didn't know before. 
And she set up a pretty good business for herself, selling beer every day at the market. And um, so she was actually starting to do better in the world. It was a whole different life than she had before, but she was thinking that was okay. And one day a very well-dressed woman came and asked if she could get some of her beer. And she thought that was a little strange. So she said, well, is it for you? And she said, no, it's for my teacher. I, I work with a guru and it would be for him. And so the woman says, um, well, in that case, you just you can just take it. You can just take this um, some for him. You don't need to pay. And so she said, oh, thank you. And, and she took it. And she came back every day and got beer because I guess he liked it. <laughs> the guru liked it. And so um, every day she gave the beer for free. And one day the guru said to the well-dressed woman, this is really good beer that you keep bringing for me. Um, where do you get that? And she said, oh, it's just this plain-looking woman who sells it in the marketplace, but she, apparently she's good at making it. And he said, well, well, bring her here. We should meet her. And so the well-dressed woman goes back and says, well, my guru would like to meet you. Why don't you come up? And so she said, okay, and went up to meet the guru. And the guru took one look at her and saw that she was very spiritually ripe. And he gave her uh, teachings that were... Uh, pointing out instructions, which you know, pointed toward liberation, and she awakened completely. And she became a very powerful, she, she developed all of the powers, and she became actually a very powerful teacher in the Tibetan tradition. Her name was Sukhasiddhi, so she was renamed Sukhasiddhi from whatever her name was before, and uh, became a great teacher of many people, did a lot of good in the world. So... Of course, this is story is very allegorical. It has a lot of symbolism in it. We won't go over all of it, but at a very basic level, what we have is somebody whose life isn't going very well, and they're nearing the end of the rope. And what happens at times like that is that the spiritual comes and knocks on the door, right? So in this case, it was the beggar, but... Something comes and knocks on our door, and we have to respond to it. Um, which so the and so she did. She actually fed it. She fed the spiritual knocking that came on her door, and that of course immediately had a what seemed like a negative effect. She got thrown out for giving away the last of the rice, but she had put her she had given it to the spiritual, and so she had gained a little bit of protection from that and a lot of good merit. And so, and then she went along and some, some different life opened for her than she could have had before, even though it seemed like a negative consequence, which can happen to us when we first start spiritual practice. It can seem like it's taking our life apart in some way. And so then she, she eventually settles into this other life of selling the beer. And again, another knock comes where this woman says, oh, it's for my guru. And so she immediately, and again, she nourished it. She just gave the beer away. She didn't say, well... You know, I'm just scrapping along here. Everybody's got to pay. You know, she again saw that there was a spiritual opportunity to, to give to this guru, so she gave the beer for free. She again nourished it. And that resulted eventually in her meeting the guru, and she had stored up enough merit by then to awaken. So we don't, she, that was not her aim. <laughs> you know, She wasn't um, on a path. I mean, maybe she had practice of some kind. I don't know. Maybe she believed something. But she wasn't 
none of that was done in a calculating, goal-oriented way of achieving that. And it's like that in our lives, right? So if you look back, there have been some really interesting coincidences in your life, right? <laughs> opportunities, I don't know what they were, but opportunities that came about, not that you had planned, but wow, I didn't realize it, but all these conditions that I had been creating separately suddenly come together for something or maybe it's going to happen to you tomorrow if you don't think it's happened yet. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. Um, so our willingness to give to the spiritual and to just keep nurturing that in our, uh, in our life, in whatever form it comes, can we recognize it? Do we see it appearing before us? And do we choose to give to that? It may have very interesting effects. There's a, a picture outside one of the area with interview rooms at the Insight Meditation Society, which is, by the way, the center where Joseph Goldstein <laughs> teaches. Um, and it's sort of a, a Japanese-style ink drawing. Um, like, I don't know if you ever did those ones where you, you take the ink and you put it on the paper and then you blow with a straw and kind of trace the line along. Anyway, it looks like that. And it's very tall, um, at least six feet tall or something, and then just a little, not very wide. And it looks like some kind of flower or grass or something. And a few of the things at the bottom are kind of, you know, little uh, little short sweeps. And then there's this one that goes all the way up to the top <laughs> of the six feet thing. And the caption on it says, it says at the bottom, uh, try not to have any expectations. <laughs> Which I love, right? <laughs> Is that, you know, there's going to be these little things and then all of a sudden there's the one that shoots up. So um, so back to the chicken image. <laughs> we have this chicken sitting on the eggs, and the, the hatching of the chicks is a natural process. And the chicks are just going to come, um, whether the chicken is wishing for it or planning for it or uh, has goals about that or not. So to what degree do we trust in our path as a natural unfolding if we are giving to it properly, right? We have to warm, warm it rightly, incubate it rightly, so that would be, say, nourishing the spiritual when it appears in the right way. Um, do we trust that in ourselves, this natural unfolding? You can look at how long-time practitioners practice. For the most part, they go along with their lives. And from time to time, they'll undertake some thing, like a retreat with a particular teacher, or uh, take a month off for writing, or... Uh, do a uh, trip somewhere. And these things sort of come from within. You know, it's like even long-time practitioners don't know what's going to happen next necessarily, but they get this sense like, oh, it's time to do such and such, or oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop some of my volunteer activities and focus on my practice, or oh, I'm going to go out into the community and volunteer more. It's like these these ebbs and flows come, and then, you know, we need to... Trust that. And we're truly not in control of this process. Um, it's only a matter of how deeply we accept that, I think. So, relax. <laughs> Just do your practices and do them properly. And then things will unfold. The path will unfold. Not always in a comfortable way. Not always in a way we can understand. Um, sometimes. <laughs> But it will always unfold just as it can, I think. Yeah, so these are my thoughts on nourishing the 
the process of the path. Do you have comments or questions? <laughs>